Children's Church, yes. Sorry about that. So children can be dismissed for Children's Church out to the Fellowship Hall. Thank you very much. I'm glad Woody knew that because I had no idea. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, very good to be back here, uh, to be home again. We enjoyed our trip to pick up Brianna and uh, road trip. Our family loves to road trip and whatnot. Um, it's always great to be home, and it's great to be home at Parkside. So um, it's, uh, you know, Parkside is a big part of my history. I've, I've shared my testimony numerous times. I'm sure you all uh, can quote it to, back to me. And, and, um, but, but Parkside has been a large part of my history, particularly my Christian history, and uh, Parkside has a, um, a blessed history. It was formed actually between the merger of two churches back in uh, 1989. Uh, January 1st, 1989, it was actually formed and it was a merger of two churches, which is, I think is unusual for churches to go that way rather than the other way. And um, since that time, the Lord has blessed this church in numerous ways. And uh, one of those ways that, that God has blessed this church is that he has uh, kept our focus on the word of God. And we have done our best throughout the years from that time to the present to preach and teach God's word, to obey what it says to the best of our ability. And so God has blessed us in that regard. And, and, uh, and that's a, a history that we can be proud of. God has done a lot of things here. And uh, I remember coming through those doors for the first time back in 1992. And that was the beginning, really, of my journey that uh, God was working in mighty ways in me. And so uh, I'm very proud to, to uh, work here at, at Parkside and uh, feel like God has brought things full circle. And as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. This is a very familiar passage. And uh, I want us to, to ask the question as we go through this passage today, and that is, what does the Lord have to say to us in this passage? And so why don't we go to him in prayer right now, and we will ask that question. Father, we come to you this morning and rejoice that we are able to do so. We know that in ourselves, finite and fallen creatures that we are, we have no right to come into your presence. We uh, should be destroyed because you are holy, and, uh, and we and ourselves are not. And yet because of what Jesus has done... By dying for us on the cross, we can come to you and we can call you Father. We can have access to your throne. We can bring our requests to you and know that, that you hear us, know that we are safe in Christ and we have peace with God through him. And so we do that this morning. We rejoice and we praise you, praise you for all the work that you have done in our lives in this past week and in this past month, the ways you have protected us in uh, numerous ways. You've provided for our needs. You've given us wonderful things. I praise you also for your work here at Parkside throughout the last uh, number of decades, the ways that you have blessed and done great things, and we do pray that you would continue to. Father, we, uh, we see you at work, and we give you great glory for what you have accomplished. Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would bless our time together. I pray indeed that we would be humble before you, that we would uh, sit under your word that your word would be over us and we would recognize your authority and the authority that you've given your word over us. We submit ourselves to it this morning. I pray also that we would be hungry, that we would long to know what you have for us, what, uh, what food there is for us from this passage this morning. And so I pray that you would help us in that regard. Lord, uh, open our, our ears and our minds and our hearts to what you have for us. 
from your word this morning. Speak to us by your spirit. May we be sensitive and may we be responsive. We look to you. We give you glory. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, as I said, we are in Acts chapter 9, and uh, we are moving through our book rapidly here. I was telling a Sunday school class this morning, there are like 97 or 99 different episodes in the book of Acts. And so if you even just took an episode at a time, that's a couple of years worth of preaching. And so we are moving uh, through it faster than that. That has its advantages, has its disadvantages, but uh, uh, we will finish sometime uh, around Thanksgiving. But we're going to cover the entire chapter today, and there are a couple of main stories that we're going to look at today, and we're going to see that there are a couple of different uh, ways in which God is working in surprising ways through His church in this time. And so we don't really know exactly how much time has passed uh, precisely from, uh, from the time Jesus was uh, raised from the dead and ascended to the Father and the Spirit came and all of that. We don't, I, don't, I don't know the number of years exactly, but a number of years have passed. And, and uh, we're going to be introduced in our passage today to a brand new apostle. And um, actually, when we start the chapter, he's not an apostle and, and we're going to meet him. But his name is Saul. And he's also called Paul. And so I may switch back and forth. I don't mean anything subtle by saying Paul versus Saul or vice versa. It's just his name. And so I'm going to refer to him probably one way or the other. And you can chuckle if I get it wrong. But, uh, but we're talking about Paul. We're talking about Saul. And we see uh, what happened from the previous chapter and what he was doing the last time we saw him. He was... Um, he was giving his consent to the stoning of Stephen, and then he was, uh, he was persecuting the church all the way back in the beginning of chapter 8. And so he's not a good guy. He's not a hero in the story at this point. But we're going to see that in our passage here today, he's going, to, he's going to be called to Jesus himself. And this is a familiar passage. You all are familiar with it. You know it well. I'm going to read uh, just verses 1 through 6 here, and we're going to see how this persecutor of the church is actually halted. I was going to put arrested, but he wasn't because uh, I thought that was a neat play on words. and I put halted instead, but God stops him in his tracks. He's on his way, right? He's on his way to Damascus. He's going to continue to persecute the church, and, and uh, Jesus halts him in his tracks. Verses 1 through 6, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so he's on his way. He's going to continue persecuting the church as we've seen that he's been doing the last couple of chapters. He's tracking them down, hunting them down, and apparently he ran out of likely targets in Jerusalem. So he sought targets in Damascus and received permission to go do that. So he was traveling there. And, and uh, while he's on his way, there's a light from heaven that stops him in his tracks and he falls down where he is. And, and Jesus speaks to him. And he has no idea what's going on. But Jesus stops him right in his tracks and, and, uh, and, and he, he has to uh, cry out, who, who are you, Lord? What, he doesn't understand what's going on. 
So we see that he was halted in his tracks. We see also that his eyes are blinded. We continue reading in the passage. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and all of his eyes were opened. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so here... This great leader, this great young leader who was, uh, was, was such an exciting figure probably for the Jews, particularly in his zeal for punishing the Christians and tracking them down. He was a bright young man and he, was, he was, uh, had great potential and all of this. And here he is struck blind. He sees this light. Jesus speaks to him. Jesus calls him uh, to go into town and, and stop persecuting my people, stop persecuting me. But he, he, Jesus calls him, and as a result of that, his eyes are blinded. And we see that he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he can't even walk. He has to be led by the hand. He's taken into the city, and for three days, he still can't see. And it's, uh, This is a picture. This, this happened really exactly like this his eyes were blinded and he couldn't see in front of him but it was a picture god was revealing to him the reality of the truth of his own spiritual blindness the fact that though he was such an educated young man though he knew his old testament probably perfectly probably knew it by heart but he knew it very well and he was a leader and he was a a smart man and yet he was blind when he encounters christ he sees and learns about himself that he's blind This reminds me of John chapter 9. A very similar thing happens there where you've got a blind man. Jesus heals him and then there's a big argument. Uh, The the Pharisees come and are trying to figure out uh, how this young man can see. And and, uh, the, the point of the whole story is that the Pharisees are the blind ones. And the blind man is the one who can actually see. And if, if the Pharisees had understood that they were actually blind, then God would give them sight and they would be able to see. But since they thought they knew things, they were the ones who were blind. And that's the case here with, uh, with Saul, is that he thinks he sees things, but in fact, he's blind. And really, this is, this, this is the state of all believers. I refer you to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and the first six verses of that passage uh, communicate that, that, that really, in essence, what is the problem with the unbeliever is not that they don't understand something, or not that they don't have the ability to comprehend something or whatever, but it's a blindness of heart. It's a blindness of heart. And until God shines a light in and opens that, the eyes of that person, they will not understand. They will not come to Christ. And so we see here, Saul is on his way. He's a smart young man. He's educated and all that kind of stuff. And yet, he's blind. There's something I want to note in passing here. Did you see what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought he was persecuting Christians. He was tracking down people like you and me and arresting them and putting them in jail. And Jesus said, you're actually persecuting me. And there, there's a truth here that's going to come out later in our, in our discussion. But the truth is that, that when Jesus calls people to himself and they become members of the body of Christ, he so identifies with them that when they are persecuted, it's as if he is being persecuted. So... We as members of the body of Christ are united with him. And we're going to see that come to play later on. But I think it's it's telling here that Jesus points that out. You're actually persecuting me. And so we see that his eyes are blinded, right? And uh, we read on in our our passage here starting in, in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. 
The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And so we see that his encounter with Christ revealed his blindness, but then Jesus sends to him Ananias, who completes the conversion process. Ananias, who comes to him being sent by Jesus himself to a man that Ananias was afraid of, all Christians were, And he goes to this man and he obeys Jesus, gives him the message from him, lays hands on him, prays for him, and and Saul is converted and he's baptized. And so we see uh, his conversion is completed there. So he has gone from being a man with, with, uh, with sight, with physical sight and with great understanding and yet spiritual blindness. And now Jesus has given him his sight back. And so the violent persecutor of Christ's followers has now become one of them. And he's to become a preacher, and he's to become a sufferer. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. But the Lord said to him, talking to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So he's he's going to be a preacher. He's going to be called to go to the Gentiles. And, And of course, we know that that's what Paul turns into as the missionary, the great apostle to the Gentiles, travels all over, taking the, the, the gospel to them. And that's what he does. He also gets to stand before rulers, before kings, before officials, and, and he gets to pr- preach Christ to them in unlikely places because of what God does through him. But he's also going to continue his ministry to the Jews. He's not going to leave behind his ministry to the Jews. He goes to a new place. He goes into a new synagogue. He preaches the gospel there. That works out for a while. Eventually, they run him out of the synagogue because they don't like his message. And so he moves on and ministers to the Gentiles. But that's what he's doing. He's, he's going to be a preacher. But did you notice what he said there in verse 16 also? I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul was going to be called not only to preach, not only to have a great ministry, not only to write you know, much of the New Testament, he was going to be called to suffer. That was his calling. I wonder what he thought when he heard that. You're going to be called to suffer. This is what God has for you. And this is what we as Christians are called to as well. Jesus suffered. And he said that we, as his followers, will suffer likewise. And Paul thinking about this, uh, probably about this same message in Colossians 1 and verse 24 says this. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so Paul, by his own suffering, would put on display before people who hadn't seen Jesus suffer, hadn't even heard about Jesus suffering. You know, they, they could look at the Christian, they could look at Paul, and they could see the suffering servant of God 
there before them in the form of Paul. So that was part of his ministry was to go and to suffer. And we see what happens in uh, in his life shortly after this takes place. We continue on the second half of verse 19. We see the beginnings now of an apostle. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so we see him begin to minister almost immediately there in Damascus. And later on, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to do a similar thing where he's preaching. Remember, he knows the Old Testament. And now that he knows Christ, he knows what the Old Testament means, not just what it says. And he begins to preach Christ immediately. And he begins to, to be in discussion with, uh, with the Jews who were arguing with him about, uh, no, Jesus isn't the Christ. And he would point to the scripture and he would say, yeah, look and see, look and see. There he is. And he was arguing and they couldn't defeat him and they couldn't argue with him. And the same thing would happen later on in Jerusalem. He would go and be in discussion with them and they couldn't defeat him in argumentation. He preached boldly, immediately. I remember when I was a new Christian, maybe you remember for yourself, a great boldness. And so often Christians lose that boldness. And Saul never did. He continued with it. May we continue with the boldness of a new Christian. We continue reading in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by, by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So he begins to receive threats almost immediately. First in Damascus and later on in Jerusalem, same thing. They can't defeat him in argumentation, so they decide they're just going to kill him. They're looking for him. They want to get him out of the way. They, they, can't, they can't withstand his argumentation, so they're just going to kill him, the man. And so he begins to receive threats right away. And it's interesting that he, he was received with suspicion by the Christians at first, both in Damascus and later in Jerusalem. Once they got used to him, then he begins to uh, receive suspicion and then hatred and finally threats from the Jews who could not withstand him. And so we see that uh, just like Stephen, who was... They, the, the Jews were unable to withstand his argumentation. They eventually just decided to kill him. And the same thing happens with Paul. So he's receiving threats. But we see that uh, both times he's actually rescued by the church. But his disciples took him by night, verse 25, and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So it was the work of the church that rescued him. And it's going to be the same thing in Jerusalem. When he runs away, they're the ones who, uh, they take him down to Caesarea and they ship him off so that he can be safe. And so the church takes care of him. It's the church itself that's, that's doing the rescuing. I think it's interesting that, did you notice in verse 25? It says his disciples, Saul's disciples. He already has disciples there in Damascus. He's leading people to Christ, perhaps. He's discipling people and he's, he's, he's teaching them how the Old Testament, the Bible that they had, pointed to Christ. And so he has these disciples already. He's already training them. He's beginning from the very beginning to teach them how all of the law and the prophets, all of even the history of the Old Testament is a giant arrow pointing to Christ. And so he has his own disciples and they are the ones who, uh, who rescue him, free him, make it so that he 
is able to leave and, and continue on. And we see in verse 31 what the result is there after he leaves Jerusalem. So the, ch- the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Paul seems to have been a magnet for this kind of persecution. He was probably the ringleader. He was the most outspoken one, sounds like Paul. And he was the one standing up and arguing and they couldn't defeat him. And so the the, the Jewish leaders hated him. And once they got him out of the picture, it seems like there was a, a degree of peace. And so the church began to grow. It began to spread. It began to multiply. We see that that uh, the church was fulfilling what, what we saw was supposed to be happening there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. They were to be they were to be his his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and that's what's happening right here so we see that uh, the church is walking in the fear of the Lord they're receiving the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they're growing mightily by the way a church that walks in the fear of the Lord and is comforted by the Holy Spirit knowing that we have peace with God not because I worked really hard but because of what Jesus has done for me a church that walks in that truth is an effective church And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 9. So that's the end of our connection with Paul for the moment. He's shipped off to Tarsus. He's out of the picture. He's no longer there. But we see the story continues a couple of more episodes here in our passage. And we want to look at uh, Peter and some miracles that are done by this apostle. And so we begin reading in verse 32. We see that we have a brother here who is healed. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we see the the focus comes back on Peter for a moment. And Peter has kind of been the focus to this point anyway. And once Saul has been introduced and saved and commissioned and sent off to Tarsus, now we come back to Peter himself. And we see that we have this man named Aeneas. He's been bedridden for eight years. He's paralyzed. And Peter comes in and he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise. And he does. He heals him. So here's a man who's been lying there eight years and... and, uh, and, and God heals him. But that's, that's not the most. We have also a sister who is raised. We continue reading 36 through the, end, through the end of the chapter. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. 
And so here we have this woman whose name in Aramaic is Tabitha and in Greek is Dorcas and in English would be Gazelle, by the way. Dorcas is not probably the prettiest name that we've ever heard, but Gazelle is a pretty name. And so uh, that's her name. She, she, she dies. And here they call Peter over and Peter goes there. And I love that it says he looked at the body. This is a body because she's dead. She's not in a slumber. She's not in a swoon. She's dead. And he says to her, Tabitha, arise. And she does. She's raised from the dead. Can you imagine the impact this would have had on on the Christian community there? To see uh, a dear friend of theirs, a dear sister in Christ, be raised from the dead. And then we don't even have to imagine what happened in the surrounding community. Similarly to what happened in Lydda. People heard about it. They knew God was at work and people started turning to Christ because they could see the evidence of God at work in his church. In these instances, through Peter. So what a blessed thing that they were able to receive back their sister. They were able to receive back this woman who had died. Well, that's impossible for a woman to be raised from the dead. And that's exactly what God did. That's the way God works. He's not limited by what is possible or impossible. That's who God is. And we, so, we see in both of these places, many people come to Christ, and so the, the church is, is growing, but we see also that their horizon is expanding. If you have a, a map in the back of your Bible, and I hope you do, I always like Bibles that have maps in the back so I can go and look, but you'll see that Joppa and Lydda are both far north in Judea up towards Samaria. And remember the natural distaste that there is for Samaria. Well, Peter goes up there and begins to minister, and now there's a growing church in the border country with Samaria, with these people that they don't like. They actually, you know, in in their culture, the way they've grown up, they, they actually have hated these people. And now the ministry is moving that direction, and it's growing and expanding, and it's being strengthened in those areas. And so... Peter goes up there, and he's in Joppa, and he's in Lydda. He's up in the border country. This is what God's doing. So God is, in a very literal sense, fulfilling what he said was going to happen back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that they would be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So progress is being made. We see that the gospel is going forward. It's going forward into new territories, into new places, in surprising places and surprising directions. So that's our passage. There are a few things I I want us to notice as we think about this. We think about the grand scheme of what happened. We could think a lot and talk a lot about Paul's conversion, how he comes to Christ, and there's a a lot in there. We could look at each of these pictures and the miracles and things like that, but there are just a few things I I want to draw to your attention as we come to a close. And I will will warn you right away, you don't have enough room in your little section on takeaways to write down all I'm going to tell you. So write small or write somewhere else. But uh, I've, got, I've got four of them here that I want to draw to our attention. First of all, if God can save Saul, the violent persecutor and hater of the church, he can save that person that in your mind is unsavable. I don't know who that is, but as I say that, probably someone pops into mind. That person is not unsavable. If Paul can save this guy, who was actually tracking people like you and me down and putting them in jail, he can save you, me, and that person who in your mind is unsavable.
Secondly, another theme that we see all through this chapter is that the primary means of God working in our day is the faithful activity of the church. It's through the church. It's through his people. It's through his believers. Now, we saw that Jesus did appear or his, there was a light and he spoke directly to Saul, right? So Jesus was acting directly, actively on his own behalf in that story. And then what does he do? He says, go into town. And then he appears to another person, uh, Ananias, and sends him to go deal with Saul. And from there on out, we see that it is the, the faithful working of the church that is God's instrumentality, even in bringing salvation to people, even in bringing healing to people, and even raising people from the dead. It's the working of the church. And so Jesus has put us in place as the church for that purpose. That's why we say that, that the, the book of Acts is the continuing work of Jesus. It's the, the ministry that he continued to do. And he does that through you and through me, which is a, an incredible honor. And it's a responsibility that we have. And so we've been called to that. That's the second thing. Thirdly, I asked the question as I was reading this, where is the gospel evident in this chapter? Where do we see the gospel jumping out? We see Saul being saved, right? But where is the gospel evident here? And here's where I think it is. What had Saul earned? What had Saul earned by his chasing down Christians, arresting God's people and putting them in jail? Only the enmity of God. Only the wrath of God. And what did God do to save him? Everything. He did everything to save Saul. It was the, it was the initiation by Jesus himself, and it was completed by God himself to save him. And so we see the gospel there, that that's, it's God's saving work in the lives of undeserving people like you and like me and like Saul. That's the gospel of God taking that initiative and God carrying it all the way through. He doesn't make us a generous offer and then sit back and wait to see if we'll figure it out, to see if we'll have what it takes to carry through with it. He acts savingly, and he acts savingly in the life of Saul. But I think there's another a clear example here of the gospel, how it's, how it's played out in this, in this passage. And I, I brought it to our attention when we read through when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? by persecuting my body. There's an identification between Jesus Christ and those who are in Jesus Christ. So much so that Jesus could say, when you're persecuting my people, who are my body, you are persecuting me. There's that close of a connection. And that points us to the gospel. When we are in Christ, we are, are so identified with him that his death becomes our death. We are so identified with Him that His payment for sin applies to us. We are so identified with Him that His righteousness, and this is a big one and hard to swallow, His righteousness becomes our righteousness because we are in Christ. And when we are in Him, we are so identified with Him that His resurrection confers life to our mortal bodies. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be included in Him. That's what the gospel is. And so we see that very clearly in this passage. Paul was made right with God purely by what God had to offer, not by what Paul had to offer. 
It wasn't his doing. Jesus, by his own initiative and action, placed Paul into a right relationship with him. And that's the gospel. And so I see that in this passage, and it's encouraging to me to see Jesus in such an active role, to see that the gospel plays out in that way, to see that we, when we, are, uh, when we trust in Christ, we are placed within Him, and all of those blessings, spiritual blessings in Christ, Paul will call them later in Ephesians 1, are ours in Him. And that's the gospel. There's a fourth thing I want us to point to, and this is, this is a little bit of a challenge. There's a, uh, there's a recurring word throughout this passage. It actually started in, in uh, chapter 8, and it's going to continue on into chapter 10. And it's the word rise. You probably noticed it. It, it occurs several times in there. You remember back in chapter 8, uh, we saw it happen there also. With Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, God tells Philip in 8.26, he says, Philip, rise and go. And what happens? The miraculous work of God is what happens. You have the same thing in chapter 9 in our story in verse 6. While Paul is lying on the ground because he's just been spoken to, he's just seen the light from heaven, what does Jesus say to him? Rise and enter the city. And God was working miraculously in that situation. We see it continue on in 9-11. The Lord tells Ananias, rise and go and address Paul, Saul, this person that you're afraid of. Go and minister the gospel and go minister healing to him. And God works miraculously in that situation. We see it continue in 9-34. Peter tells Aeneas, rise and make your bed. And God was working miraculously. In 9-40, Peter tells the dead body of the woman, Tabitha, arise. And the dead woman was miraculously raised to life by God. Then we're going to see in 1013 next week, what does God say to Peter in this vision? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And God was going to work miraculously. And so you have this theme in this passage here of the word rise. And it's connected with the miraculous work of God each time. And we see that we're at a key point in the story right here that the gospel, where had the gospel been before this, before these, these last couple of chapters? In Jerusalem, growing like in a greenhouse, producing fruit and doing what it should do, but it was in Jerusalem. And God wanted to work to edge them out, to move them beyond so that they would go beyond Jerusalem into Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was being forced to move into new areas of ministry, initially by persecution from enemies, which I think is ironic because Saul was one of those. He contributed to the the expanse of the gospel before he even believed it by persecuting the Christians. But we see that it's growing, it's expanding. First of all, it's from persecution. And second of all, it's because of the command and the miraculous work of God himself in expanding the gospel and taking it into new places. So that raises the question in my mind, are we individually... Or as a church, sitting where it's comfortable for us. Ministering in ways that we always have. In ways that are comfortable and that we know how to do. Because they they knew how to minister in Jerusalem. They were figuring that out and they had been there for some time. But is there somewhere God would have us go? Some new area of ministry God would have us enter as a church? Or maybe you individually? Are we like that church that was contentedly sitting, staying in Jerusalem and needing to be nudged out? I started with, I started this sermon by referring back to the, the, the great history of Parkside and the story of what God has done here. 
And over the years, we have clung to God's word. We have, we have tried to guard it. We've tried to obey it as best we can all through the years. And God has blessed us in that. He's blessed our efforts in that. He's blessed our church. He's brought many to Christ. He's taken care of us. He has blessed us. But our passage today is about moving outward, about moving beyond. It's about taking gospel ministry into new and even uncomfortable areas. And so I ask the question for each of us, are there people that we have lived alongside for years and yet we've never reached out to them? Is there maybe a people group in town, maybe an ethnic group, maybe a religious group, maybe a socioeconomic group? that we've just kind of ignored because maybe they're unsavable or maybe I just don't like them. Well, who are they? When I asked that question, who popped into your mind? Who are the Samaritans? Who are those that God would nudge us towards? From this passage, God is telling us that His church is an advancing church. It's a church that moves forward. It's an outward-moving church. We're told in Acts chapter 1-8, I've already referred to it, that he, he said we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It's an outward-moving church. It's a progressing church. It goes forward. And we can't do that as a church if we stay in our Jerusalem, if we stay where it's cozy, if we stay the way we've always done it. We have, we have brick buildings at this church, and they're beautiful, and I love them. I just don't want us to be like them. A brick is immovable. It doesn't change. It doesn't go forward. It sits there, and it's rock solid. And that's a good thing. You can hide behind that. You can build on that, and I want us to build on that. I don't want us to be like our brick buildings that are immovable. And so who needs to know about the grace and mercy of God in Christ? Who in Fallon needs to hear about the accomplished work of Christ on behalf of sinners? Who is that? Who's that person in your mind? What's that group in your mind? Church, let's pray together about what pressing ministries we've been ignoring, we've been overlooking. Let's ask God to show us where we need to go and let's rise and go there. Let's pray. Father, this passage is convicting to me. It's convicting to me because I like to be comfortable. I don't always like to go forward. I don't always like to advance. I don't always like to enter new areas where I may be like Paul, where people people begin to uh, be, begin to be suspicious of me or maybe even begin to hate me or or do bad things to me or threaten bad things to me. And I'm not alone in that. I like to be comfortable. But your kingdom is an advancing kingdom. Your church moves forward. Your church is to go into all the world. And frankly, speaking for myself, it in some ways was almost easier to move overseas for the gospel than to cross town for the gospel. And here we are in Fallon, and we have opportunities that you've given us. You've placed them before us. You've placed here on purpose. And we saw in this passage how much you work through your church. And here we are, well positioned. We have a rich history of loving your word. We have a rich history of sharing the gospel. We have a rich history of trusting you and and trying to be faithful to you through all things. I pray that you would use us, well positioned church, 
that you would use us to minister to, to, to those around us, that we would take the gospel to them. I have people in my mind and I have people groups in my mind. Father, I pray that you would help me and us to be bold with the gospel. Help me and help us to go forward, even willing to step out of our comfort zone, maybe doing things in ways we haven't always done them or maybe, maybe have never done them, that we might reach out. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in this. I pray that you would lead us. I pray that you would open doors. I pray that you would spur us on, help us to encourage each other, provide for our needs. But lead us, Lord, where shall we go? What shall we do? How would you move us? How would you have us minister in our community? How would you have us move beyond Jerusalem and Judea and up into the borderlands and up towards Samaria and towards the end of the earth? How would you have us do that? Lead us, we pray. Use us, we pray. Make us fruitful. We want to be like this church in verse 31 that was seeing you at work and, and, and multiplying us as we walk in the fear of you and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Father, we trust you and we ask you for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We will have a family be forward, uh, come forward to pray with you if you'd like to pray with them. Uh, it's a